Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 86. Hi, I'm Jarek Robbins, the author of Live It, Achieve Success by Living with Purpose. All the better if that purposeful life includes a podcast like this one. It's the Read to Lead podcast with my friend, Jeff Brown. For the next meeting you go into this week, think about the dynamics in the room, the context of the meeting, and the agenda for the meeting. And then think about two questions you want to ask and two thoughts you want to contribute. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever-important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable features feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now here's Jeff. Hi there and welcome to the podcast that is dedicated to your personal and professional growth. We will sit down this week as we do every week with another successful and inspiring business book author. We'll talk about her latest book and her area of expertise, which happens to be in the area of leadership. Today, it's Mindy Hall, PhD. She's the author of Leading with Intention, Every Moment is a Choice. And I plan to ask Mindy about why recognizing your impact as a leader begins with self-awareness, the eight critical questions we need to consider to begin building this awareness, the importance of evaluating some of our preconceived notions, and a whole lot more. I just looked out the window and noticed that my buddy Lee, who mows my lawn, has just begun doing exactly that. So I'm not sure how this is going to go. This is the first time for everything. But if you hear a hum or some noise in the background as uh, Mindy and I begin to chat, uh, it's the lawnmower. So uh, hopefully it won't be too much of a distraction. As a fan of the podcast, I thought you might be interested to know that Read to Lead has been nominated for another award. This time, Best Business Podcast in the Academy of Podcaster Awards, sponsored by Stitcher, and happening July 31st in Fort Worth, Texas. In fact, we find out later this week who the other nominees are. I'm sure the competition will be very, very stiff. Love to have you in our private Facebook group just for Read to Lead podcast listeners. If you'd like to be added to the group, just send a text with the word or the phrase Read to Lead with no spaces to 33444. That's Read to Lead to 33444. You'll get a text immediately asking you to respond with just your email address. Once you do that, we can get you added to the group. If you're interested in getting through your favorite business books in about 15 minutes in either written or audio form, then you want to check out Blinkist. Visit them at readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist. And for video tutorials on just about anything you might want to learn, visit our other sponsor, Linda. readtoleadpodcast.com slash Linda. Mindy Hall, PhD, is the president and CEO 
of Peak Development Consulting, LLC. Now, since founding the company in 1996, she's worked with clients around the world to create sustainable organization and leadership development solutions, helping leaders solve today's challenges while also growing capacity to lead future initiatives. Clients include leading pharmaceutical, biotechnology, technology, insurance, manufacturing, government, and nonprofit organizations, several of which are among the Fortune 50. And she is the author of the book, Leading with Intention, Every Moment is a Choice. Mindy, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. Jeff, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I want to begin at the beginning uh, and want to know what does it mean, Mindy, in your view, to operate with intention? Because as you say in the book, it's, it's simple in concept, but it's quite different in practice, isn't it? It is. And, you know, Jeff, leading with intention is really just about um, having it being built on a foundation of awareness. So awareness of yourself, of your mindsets, of the impact you have on others, and really of the context in which you're working um, or living. It's, it's literally being mindful about how you show up in the world, what tone you set, um, and having an understanding and an ownership of the contribution that you make to any dynamic that you're in. Because there, in any of our interactions with one another, there's never one person who creates the dynamic. There's always two. Well, you mentioned self-awareness. Uh, share a bit about, Mindy, your experience with this, uh, your personal experience, and, and how to go about noticing yourself through the eyes of, of someone else. You know, it's, it's uh, interesting because my first job um, out of college, I ran a 24-hour crisis center. And I used to ask people during that time um, when I was training them to be able to deliver that service, I would ask them to do a day where all they did was observe. Mm. I asked them not to speak and just observe <laughs> everything that was going on in that day. The, you know, the color of somebody's eyes, the kind of earrings people were wearing, and also of their own process of awareness through that day. And then we would debrief it at the end of the day. We, had, we used to have evening training sessions and they would come in and look quite exhausted and, and say to me, you know, there's no way you can live in the world at that level of awareness, which is absolutely true. <laughs> but when you think about the concept of self-awareness and, and noticing yourself through another's eyes, it really is a completely controllable variable. It all begins with your awareness of your personal impact. And it's really about being able to be in the moment and watch yourself in the moment all at the same time. Now, I say that it takes extraordinary energy to do that, Mm. but it also is something that you can ask yourself, if I were on the receiving end of this exchange, how would I be experiencing me? And that's where you start to really get some ahas. Um, I know that when I work with people in in my coaching practice, oftentimes they are so surprised when I have observed them in an interaction and I give them feedback about how they've landed. They're surprised by that because it wasn't their intention. And so this is really about how do you marry intention and impact? How do you become much more aware of the tone you're setting and really be able to say, if I were on the other end of this, what would I be feeling? What would I be experiencing? And this often shows itself, doesn't it, Mindy, in in meetings? I know there was a couple of of real-world examples from the book where individuals are saying one thing and exhibiting through their actions something completely different, as you said, without realizing it. Can you give us a a real-world example or two of of what that looks like? Sure. Um, An individual that I was working with who had a global team, 
She had brought them in from all over the globe. And um, it was an organization, as in many organizations, where people were very used to multitasking in a meeting, which I have my own, you know, (laughs) issues about anyway, because I think it impacts people's feeling of presence in a room and impacts, you know, people's feeling of respect. And we can talk about that more uh, if you want to go further with that. But, but back to this example, she had brought this team in and she started the meeting this way. She said, listen, guys, we have very little opportunity to get together um, very often face to face. And so I really want to make the most use of this time while we're together. We're only together for two days. And so what I'd like to ask is I'd like you to make sure that computers are away, smartphones are away, um, and that you are fully present to this meeting. And we had talked before the meeting and I had, you know, asked her what was the tenor she wanted in the meeting. And she said, you know, I really want people to be very in the meeting. I said, well, you're going to have to call that because it's not the culture of this organization. So she did. At the first break, um, right before we were going to break, and it was probably about 10, 15 in the morning. Now, mind you, it's a culture that, you know, people are used to being tethered almost all the time, (laughs) no matter if they're in a meeting or not a meeting. And so I think she was really having a hard time herself yeah. not being tethered. And so at about 10 o'clock, we were going to break around 10, 15. We just had a few, uh, few final comments that needed to be um, kind of done before we broke. And she took out her computer mm. and she opened it. Oh, no. <laughs> and so I didn't, you know, I didn't say anything. Um, and I think it was because she was preparing for the fact that a break was going to come up. You could feel the natural break in the meeting, but nevertheless, what she said about being very present and what she did were diametrically different. Mm. And so after the break and I, and I, I kind of left it to just see what would happen after the break, after the break, um, she kept her computer open And pretty much, I think I would probably say about 80% of the room took out their computers. And so at the next break, I pulled her aside and I said, hey, you know, this is an observation. um, And let me tell you how I think it's going to impact the outcomes that you want to achieve. And I just told her what I was seeing and told her what I thought it was doing in terms of modeling the behavior and that she had said one thing and was doing another and that that would undermine her credibility. and, And she, to her great credit, stopped and said, you know what? You're absolutely right. And she Mm -hmm. came back in and said, guys, listen, um, I want to apologize. I want to apologize because I said one thing at the beginning of this meeting and then I was the first to violate that. (laughs) And I want you to understand that when I say something that you can trust that I mean it. And, and I didn't set a good example around that. So I'm going to ask you again to put your computers away, mine's away for the rest the next, you know, day and a half. If anybody catches me, going for it, I want you to call me on it. <laughs> so, so it was wonderful because what it did is it just said to her, look, I'm, or said to the team, you know, I understand our propensity in this direction, but, um, I also understand the impact of saying one thing and doing another. And, um, and really it, it ratcheted up how aware and present people were to that meeting. And kudos to her for for owning up Absolutely. to that and being able to, to to address it so quickly afterward. So so after the foundation of self awareness, Mindy says comes practice, consistency, and conscious effort. So, what are some of the critical questions, Mindy, that we need to consider for beginning to build our self awareness? You know, Jeff, I have eight critical questions that I put in the book. Mm. Um, I don't think these are the only questions, but when I 
look at how people can take it from concept to practice. Sometimes I think it's best to have a well-placed question to lead you down a line of thinking. And so um, the questions that I have in the book, and I devote a chapter to each of them. And the good thing about the book, or I hope people find the good thing about the book, <laughs> is that, that none of the chapters are more than about five or six pages long. Which so, I loved. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it's funny because when I wrote the book, I, um, I gave it to three colleagues and said, listen, um, they were going doing cross-country uh, flights. Mm. And I said, I'd like you to take the book and read it. And I want you to tell me if it passes three, these three tests. Number one, did it hold your attention? Number two, were you able to finish it in a flight? And number three, was there something you could apply immediately after landing? Mm. And it was for me a way to test, you know, was it a quick read and could it be applicable? And, you know, wonderfully, it passed those tests uh, mm. with those three people. And, and so I think what, um, what you'll find with around these eight questions is that even though a chapter is devoted to each of them, it'll be a quick read. <laughs> so the first question is really around what kind of environment do you create in your interactions with others? And we spoke a little bit about this at the beginning, which mm. is really being aware of the tone you're setting, the ball you're setting in motion simply by how you're showing up, simply by how you enter the room. The second one is really about, are you clear about your intentions? And so many of us in the, the rush of our day are not clear about, you know, for instance, if we go into a meeting, what is it that we're trying to achieve? And we're not clear about the intentions that we have for meetings or for interactions with others. And if you were to ask yourself, what's my intention here? Mm. It would really set you in a direction of doing that much more consciously, showing up that way, showing up in a way that that um, realizes that intention more consciously than just letting, hopefully, it happen by happenstance. Um, the third question is around preconceived notions and asking people, do you have preconceived notions or mindsets of a person or a situation? And, and we so often operate out of old filters of people, of situations, and we don't often challenge those mindsets or filters that we have. <laughs> And it leads us in a direction of a, a certain behavior. And we can talk more about that um, if you want to later on. The fourth question is really in line with the third, which is, do you challenge your mindsets? Mm. Or do you, you know, do you, are you even aware of the mindsets that you have? Uh, question number five, how open are you to your own learning? Question number six is, do you do what you say you're going to do? And then seven is, how would others describe you as a leader? So basically, how, how are... You know, if I asked um, a sample size of 10 people, how would they describe you? What would you want them to say? Mm. And then the last question is, why do you do the work that you do? Because at the base of it, and the reason I ask people that question is, at the base of really wonderful leadership, at the base of really wonderful um, colleagueship, is that people are passionate about what they're doing. And so I often say to people, why are you doing the work that you do? And it's fascinating to hear some of the questions that come and when they start to tap into what really jazzes them mm. that's when you can really leverage how they can use that further in their careers well i do want to dig into a couple of those a little bit deeper starting with with the second question are you clear about your intentions mindy includes this really simple but very effective tool called the two plus two tool for building your intentionality mindy can can you describe that process for us sure um and this is a tool it's funny Jeff, of, of the, all the tools in the book, I think this one has gotten, um, I get 
I get emails all the time or <laughs> Twitter feeds that, you know, Twitter notes that basically say, I did my two plus two with my daughter <laughs> <laughs> or I did it with my boss or, and it's been, it's been interesting to see the way that this has been applied, but um, it is a pretty simple tool. And mm. as you, as you all know, perception shapes reality. And so going back to that example of when you enter a, a meeting, are you clear about the intentions of that you have for that meeting? Ha, you know, before you enter, have you thought about the dynamics in the room, maybe the key points you want to make, the questions you want to ask mm. or how you want to show up? And, or have you rushed into the room from another meeting with no real sense of what <laughs> you're walking into or the contribution you want to make? Mm. And really, unfortunately, the second one is more often the case um, that we all rush through the course of our days and rush from one meeting to the next. And we haven't necessarily thought terribly intentionally about how we want to show up. And we miss the opportunity then to lead an impact from a much more intentional place. So the two plus two is really, is really very simple. Think of it this way. Before the next meeting you go into this week, think about the dynamics in the room. Think about the context of the meeting and the agenda for the meeting. And then think about two questions you want to ask in the direction of, of the topic for the meeting and two thoughts you want to contribute. So all you're doing, and, and there may be more, but at a minimum, think of two questions you want to ask and two contributions you want to make to, to the topic. And that simple act of being clear in your own mind about your intentions really helps you come across as much more grounded and much more prepared and much more present. And that tool itself, even though it seems quite simplistic, is a tool that you can do running to the meeting. So people sometimes say to me, well, won't that, I don't have a lot of time, Mindy, to do two plus twos. And I, I say all the time, you can do that as you're walking to the meeting. Think of the two questions you want to ask and two thoughts you want to contribute to the meeting. Well, one aspect of our environment and our upbringing, the impact of which is often not appreciated, I think, is, is the stories and experiences that affect our mindset uh, we talked a little bit about this on the show last week with Jia Jung when he mentioned uh, one of his favorite books, Mindset by Carol Dweck. Uh, we, we've got to evaluate our preconceived notions about ourselves and, and what we're capable of, don't we? Well, mindset has a huge impact on our behavior. It, can, it actually can determine whole schools of thought. Mm. Um, and it really, you know, if you think about let me give you some examples from... From history. So um, in 1977, at the World Future Society, there was a gentleman by the name of Ken, Ols Ken Olson. Mm. And Ken at the time was the founder and chairman of uh, Digital Equipment Corporation, also known as DEC. Mm. And he stood up, and, and this is a famous one, and, and he said, you know what? I don't think anybody's going to want one of these things. And at the time, it was a massive computer. I don't think anybody's going to really need these things on their desktop. And <laughs> at the time, you know, he was running deck. And so that mindset led them to not invest in looking at ways to bring the massive computing power of those early computers that took up whole rooms to people on their jobs at their desk. And so he didn't, they didn't invest money in that direction. And they didn't begin making microcomputers until after IBM introduced their PC in 1981. And so his mindset around what he thought was going to be needed led a whole system of way of operating in that company that had them miss the market. Mm. 
and come, you know, to the market too late. And of course, DEC no longer exists. And they lost tremendous market share, again, because of his mindset. You know, another one is Steve Jobs wrote in his book that when they went to Atari and HP, that what, and it was their attempt to get them interested in what, what he and Steve Wozniak were building. And what they said is, we don't need you. You haven't even gotten through college yet. <laughs> and so those, those two companies, because their mindset was, you got to get through college before you actually can be something that is of value to us, <laughs> led them to miss the opportunity to actually partner with somebody like a Steve Jobs. And so there are tons of examples like that every day um, that basically set balls in motion because people hold these preconceived notions and they have a tremendous impact on our behavior and what we think is possible. I want to dig in a little bit more to question number five that you mentioned, Mindy, being open to our own learning. I'm fortunate to have had a leader in my past that was very much like that kind of leader you describe in the book, you know, operating with a degree of humility, encouraging diverse viewpoints. And you give an example that I thought was a great one of you attempting to exhibit this behavior. You talked about the mind map uh, that you put on outside your door. Uh, share a little bit about that process and, and what that led to. I had the good fortune when I was working in a pharmaceutical company to uh, spend a couple years in Paris working as an expat. I know, tough tour duty, but somebody <laughs> had to do it. <laughs> and, um, and when I came back, I came back to a job that was um, basically what they called the head of professional development. And all that meant, and it was for the Americas. And what that meant is I had responsibility for organization development, leadership development, and team development across five commercial business units in the Americas. When I came back, the head of that zone said to me, I said, so can you tell me you know, your big goals for this job? And I had been, the reason I placed the, the expat assignment is because I had been out of the you know, kind of the mix of the conversations for two years. I had been in Europe and I had not been around. And so I knew that I had a little bit of a learning curve just to get up to speed with what some of the current challenges were, et cetera. So I said to him, can you just give me your top two to three goals for this, for this job that I'm, that I'm taking? And he says, yes, I have one. And that is that I want you to create a development culture across the Americas. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> where do I begin with that? And what had happened at that time, the context was that they had five commercial business units and they were all doing great stuff, but they were doing great stuff in their, within their silo of their business unit. And he wanted to really encourage and facilitate much more cross-collaboration, uh, much more exportation of talent across that zone, et cetera. And so he wanted to create this culture of development so that no matter where you sat, um, you knew that mm. there was there was a um, a similar feeling across that zone about the importance of development. So what I did is I knew that if I were to try to go out and interview a bunch of people, that it would take a really long time. I think there were three thousand people in that zone at that time, um, and I knew that even if I if I interviewed thirty, mm. that that you know would represent such a small percentage that I wouldn't feel meaningful, and that surveying people would feel a little less personal and I might get some more generic responses. So I, um, I put outside my, my office a big piece of banner paper and I put in the middle of the banner paper a circle and it said um, developing or building a development culture. 
and I put down at the bottom, tell me what's important to you about how we do this in the Americas. And I sent it to the zones that weren't in the home office. Mm. I sent a picture of it and asked them to just, you know, send me emails and I would, I would basically create a mind map. And what that, within a week, I think it was, maybe, maybe, you know, 10 days, mm. the entire piece of banner paper was covered. Mm. And people had, and I you know, had left markers out there and people had come and they had given me great information for me to just be able to then think about where do we start in making this happen? And so that was, that was a way that I um, let people know that I was really open to what they had to offer and what they had to teach me and what it created in terms of momentum and buy-in and people feeling engaged around the process was tremendous because they felt like they were creating it with me and I wasn't somebody coming in and saying, I know how to do this. And so you guys can just follow along with what I'm saying. I said, you know what? I have some ideas around this. I know you have ideas around this. Let's, let's figure out together what's the best path forward. And you had buy-in from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Well, just as important as the content of your message is how your message is being delivered, Mindy says. And as we attempt to become more aware of our uh, verbal and nonverbal impact, Mindy, share a bit about the idea of being fully present and the act of active listening. In this day and age when we are so pulled in so many directions, um, I really, I personally really react to people who are in front of me who then go on their smartphone uh, while we're in a conversation. <laughs> and, you know, there's an old um, study that was done about our, our communication patterns. And I mean, it's from the 1960s, but it's still today pretty widely accepted as the rule of thumb. And basically it said that only 7% of the meaning of our communication comes from the words we use, mm. you know, are, that are the verbal. 38% is the tone of our voice and 55 is our body language. And so if you think about that and you think about your ability to, to really, really monitor yourself around that <laughs> and really control yourself around that, mm. it's kind of unfathomable to, unfathomable to me as to why we wouldn't do a better job of that. And I, I get so struck by people who are in a meeting, someone speaking, um, they pull out their computer and they start typing. And I, the, the lack of respect, I think that that shows or the, um, the, uh, the lack of presence that that creates in the meeting in terms of that person. And then other people who are watching, I think it just has a, a roll on effect that is really detrimental to what you can get done. And if I think about the, the amount of time that we spend in meetings and the preciousness of that time, to me, it's like, I'd rather not have the meeting if yeah. the behavior in the room is going to be that we're all, you know, on multiple devices doing other stuff. But Mindy, I'm just taking notes. <laughs> right, right. And I, I love that. I love that comment all the time. And I get it all the time. I bet. And, and what I say to people is I say, look, your, your rules are whatever you want them to be. This is my particular personal bugaboo. Like, yeah. you know, you don't have to live by this rule of mine. I, I, and I totally get that I have, I, I may be out of scale with my reaction to it. Um, <laughs> but, but I, once you say we're all going to not do that, and then you don't abide by that, mm. that's when I think you start, to, you start to really undermine what you can get out of a meeting. And you start to undermine the trust in the group. And, and part of, you know, when people say to me, but I'm just taking notes, 
then I say, you know, is that good with everybody? And if everybody says, yeah, no problem, then that's great. That's fine. Right. Mm -hmm. And so to me, I'm not saying that everybody, you know, that you can't have any meetings that (laughs) don't have any um, devices in them. That's not Mm -hmm. at all my message. My message is if you've said in a meeting, we're not going to do that because we're going to be fully present to one another. And research will show you that even when you say you can multitask, your ability to retain and your ability to engage is goes down exponentially depending on what device you're using. Mm-hmm. And, and so even if you say that you can, you're a great multitasker, I know that I'm going to get only a portion of what you're actually capable of. And so that's the piece for me that when I think about the productivity in a meeting and I listen to people say to me, I hate the meetings that I'm in all the time and mm-hmm. we get nothing done. And part of me says, were you on a device in that meeting? Were people present to that meeting? Because, you know, meetings, a lot can get done if there's clarity and there's presence and it doesn't have to be, you know, two hours. You might be able to get it done in a half hour if everybody's in it with one another. And I have found too, personally, I used to be that guy or one of many in past meetings I've been a part of who brought a device, a laptop or an iPad to take notes. And what I have found over the years is uh, there's a lot to be said for writing things down versus mm-hmm. typing them. I, I know that maybe sounds well, like I'm splitting hairs, but I, I've even reverted back to an analog uh, day planner. I used to keep everything electronically in Evernote and, and, and various apps and that, and that sort of thing. Now, I still have online calendars because I have folks, you know, setting up meetings with me and they need to know when my schedule is open and that sort of thing. A calendar to do's, anything I want to remember is all written down. And I just went back to that about a month or two ago and it's made a huge difference. Uh, and when I am in meetings, uh, it's it's pen and paper. It's, it's not me pulling out a laptop or, a, or an iPad and typing away and, and leaving people to wonder, well, is he, is he taking notes or is he sending an email? <laughs> exactly. And, and, and whether we like it or not, people will attribute electronic devices yeah. to um, you sending an email versus taking notes. And so they create a story around that, right? And then they create a story around how present you are, or how engaged you are. And that has all kinds of, again, follow-on effects. It's interesting that you say that you've gone back to, um, to writing. And I won't be able to quote this because I heard it on NPR and didn't write it down. But <laughs> there was... Um, uh, about two weeks ago, I heard that there was a study done on retention of, and it was with college students mm. who were taking notes on um, laptops and college students who were taking notes uh, just pencil and paper. And they found that the retention rate was almost double for the um, students who were taking notes pencil and paper. I believe it. Uh, my first experience with this kind of thing goes back probably more than 10 years. It was before the day of, of smartphones, but everybody had flip phones and, and texting was prevalent. And I remember sitting down in a meeting with a direct report. It was just the two of us. And I was bringing him into this meeting to let him know about a new project that we were undertaking and uh, the help I was going to need from him on this project and getting it off the ground. And in the middle of my sharing this important message, uh, he he gets a text on his on his flip phone and begins answering it as I'm talking. And it, yep. oh, I was furious. I, yep. I could, it was all I could do to hold hold back my anger in that moment. <laughs> Absolutely. There was a woman, there's a story in the book, uh, a young woman, I was doing a meeting, we finished the, the meeting and she said, oh, can I grab a few minutes of your time, I have a question. I said, absolutely. So, you know, went over and she asked her question and I started to answer and she pulled out her phone (laughs) and I stopped and she said, go ahead, I'm listening. And I said, no, you're not. And so when you're done, I'm happy to continue. And she said, you know, oh, okay. And, 
And I said, are you open to having a little bit more of a conversation than you thought you might have been <laughs> going to have? And she said, sure. And I said, let me just tell you the impact that had on me. And then you tell me if that's the impact you wanted to have. Mm. And we had a fantastic conversation. And her comment to me was, well, never thought of it that way. And I wish they taught us this in college. <laughs> and so, you know, again, what I think is just courtesy and normal, you know, is is not because kids are growing up in a really different environment where that's the new normal, right? And so yeah. they don't really, maybe, I don't want to overgeneralize, but they might not understand the impact of that behavior and in a very unintentional way. She didn't mean to be rude, but it landed on me as rude. So the fact that we could have had that conversation and she was open to it, you know, spoke volumes about her. Um, and I think she, you know, she walked away going, wow, okay, I got it. I got it in a different way than I had it when I walked in this morning. And that's a good thing. It, that reminds me of another story you tell in the book. I think it's in chapter three. I'm kind of backtracking here for just a moment, but it was a story having to do with your, earlier in your career, your opinion on how you were going to dress leading up to a particular <laughs> meeting. And, and a colleague shared something with you that really put it in perspective for you. Can you remember what that I, is? I do. Absolutely. So my first job, is, is, um, as I noted, was running a crisis center. And uh, when you run a crisis center, you know, you're obviously called out of bed in the middle of the night a lot um, to go to the police station or the hospital or you know, some other place. And so a lot of that time, um, and I made, you know, no money at all. So I had no <laughs> money to really buy clothes or, or, or work, you know, kind of business clothes. And so, um, I, you know, I basically would throw on a pair of jeans and uh, a t-shirt or a sweatshirt and I would run off to the hospital or the police station. And, you know, I was young and fresh out of college and that was, you know, I guess acceptable for then, but not really because I was the director of the center and I really should have presented myself more professionally, but I, I didn't a lot of the time, if truth be told. And so the next job I got was with, um, with the Bank of New York and the Bank of New York couldn't have been more diametrically opposed in terms of how they thought about dress. Mm. And so when I got that job, a friend of mine said to me, listen, we need to go out and we need to get you some clothes because you're going to the bank in New York and you need to have some clothes. And I said, you know, I don't, I don't have any money to do that. Mm -hmm. And I, if they can't accept just who I am and what I can bring <laughs> um, without all the trappings of the package, then it's just not the right place for me. And in the book, I say I was either incredibly arrogant or incredibly naive. And I think it was the second. I, I hope it was the second. And, um, and she said to me, you know, Mindy, and I, I grew up playing sports. I, was, um, I played tennis in college and I played basketball oh. and tennis in high school. And, and so she used a sports analogy. And she said to me, Mindy, if you went on a football field wearing a soccer uniform, how effective would you be in reaching your end goal? Mm. And I just kind of stopped. <laughs> and she said, you got to get on the field to be able to affect the field. And you're not going to get on the field at the Bank of New York unless you have the right uniform to get on the field. And I just, that was such a, um, a great way for her to describe that to me because it then made me feel like, 
you know what, Mm. I'm not selling out. You know, it's not all about the package. Like it just made me see things slightly differently that, you know what, if I really wanted to have a great impact there, I actually had to be able to get on the field and I would not be on the field if I didn't have the right uniform. And all this lends itself to one of my favorite chapters from the book, Managing the Story of You, because Mm -hmm. either the reality is either you shape the perception others have of you and your abilities or they shape it for you, right? I'm curious, Jeff, why that was one of your your favorite chapters? Well, I I think it's because it it illustrates that we have everything we need ourselves to direct and guide and lead our careers, that that, that it's in our power to affect how other people perceive us, perceptions, reality, and and, and it's in our control to change that if if we want to change it. We don't have to leave it to somebody else. Absolutely. And I think when people read that chapter, I think sometimes what they, what, what gets triggered for them is they think that they equate that concept with self-promotion mm. or being political. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think they shy away from thinking about managing proactively the story of themselves. And they say things like, well, my good work will just speak for itself. <laughs> and, and the, you know, Good work does speak for itself to some extent, but the reality is you also, it's an and, mm. you also have to speak for your good work. And, you know, I say that we create stories all the time to make sense of our world. And, you know, given very little information, we will make up narratives about a situation or a person, and then we'll operate out of those narratives, mm. right? Out of those stories. And so to your point, when you have the ability to actually manage that story, it's kind of ridiculous not to, <laughs> right? Absolutely. So I had the ability to change my clothing to manage the story about me a little bit better mm. or a little bit more in the direction that I wanted to. And if I had been you know, staunch in my point of view of, no, I'm not going to do that, then I would have actually been creating my own path of... Um, not being as effective as I wanted to be at the bank in New York. And I think that's what, you know, with any of this, with the book itself, the amazing thing is that it is all within your hands. It's all within you to decide. And you, it's why I put the the second piece to the title, which is every moment is a choice. You get to decide how you're going to show up. You get to decide the impact you're going to have. And we let so many opportunities go by without intentionally doing that. And I watch it, you know, I watch it in corporate America. I watch it in parents. I watch it in family interactions where we choose or we don't choose. We just operate out of pattern, right? And what we've known, Mm. we don't choose intentionally in the direction, in, in a different direction, if we want that direction to be something different. And that's when I, you know, that's why when I talk to people and I think about you know, they say, well, my boss won't let me do this. And my <laughs> boss, and I say, you have a piece of that dynamic. You own, you are a contributor to that dynamic. You can decide to shift that dynamic. Now we have to figure out how, but you can, the dynamic, you're not a victim of the dynamic. <laughs> and I think that's what, um, for me, when I think about, you know, the book and leading with intention, every moment is a choice. For me, it's just about wow, this is all within your hands, all within your capacity to make happen. Well, the book is divided into to five parts. As Mindy says, uh, it's a quick, easy read. Probably read it in one, maybe two sittings as I did. And most of my questions 
uh, thus far I've come out of sections one, two, and three. I do have some questions I want to ask Mindy, not directly related to the book, but before I do that, is there anything else from the book you'd like to make sure we know? So uh, this is in the book, but you know, it's my own little call to action, Jeff, um, <laughs> for people. And I, so it's, it's simply that every interaction is an opportunity. Every action has an impact and every moment is a choice. Choose intentionally the impact you want to have. It is all within your hands. Well, I want to ask something I ask every single person who's ever been on the podcast. Uh, sure. Name for us, if you can, a couple of books that you've read recently or maybe are currently reading that have had an impact on you and share, if you can, why or how they impacted you as they did. Sure. So so right now I'm kind of swimming in the world of visual facilitation. Mm, interesting. <laughs> I love that area. Yeah. Uh, Dan and- Rome and... Dan Rome, David Civit. Um, and so essentially um, the reason that is gotten so much resonance for me is that um, I watch day in and day out, again, meetings that aren't as impactful as they could be. And some of it is because we've gotten into such a rote behavior around come in, put the PowerPoint up, turn <laughs> the PowerPoint on, go through the deck, talk, leave. Mm. And there, you know, there's just so much more potential being left on the table than is realized in those meeting in those kinds of meetings. And so I've started to do less and less meetings with PowerPoint and more and more meetings with capturing conversations visually, mm. either in the moment or having people capture things visually, because the mind grabs pictures more than words. And so I'm trying to school myself and thinking about how to do that better. I just was out in California, um, the Grove, which is um, the organization that David Sibbett started. He wrote the book, Visual Facilitation, Visual mm-hmm. Teams, um, kind of is the grandfather of this, I think. And, um, you know, has been doing it a long time. He has a company called The Grove. And I went out and did a three-day training um, about two months ago, which was both, both fascinating for me to sit in a room for three days of training. <laughs> I haven't done that in a long time. Um, and uh, also just to see what gets unleashed when you access people's visual uh, parts of their brain. And so that was, um, that, that is something I'm spending a lot of time thinking about, reading about and um, working on. I'm not terribly good at it yet, (laughs) but I, um, I'm trying to incorporate it more and more in every meeting that I do. Uh, The other area that I'm spending a lot of time with right now is the area of design thinking. And really um, there's a book, and I'm sorry, I'm not going to remember the name, but I do remember the author. It's Idris Moody, M-O-O-T-E-E. And I think it's just called Design Thinking. But it, um, but the book itself is about how you drive innovation in an organization. And the principles aren't new. Mm. Um, it's really trying to bring together the schools of design thinking, which are you know more housed in things like um, ad agencies or product development firms or things like that to the ideas of, you know, our, um, a little bit of our stodgy mm-hmm. corporate business cycles. And how do you bring, um, how do you bring those two worlds together where design doesn't necessarily have to be at a tremendous cost. You can also realize the economic value that you need to. Apple's a great example of this where, you know, Steve Jobs was again, kind of um, fanatical about having great design at an economical cost. And so I'm reading about how to do that more and more, not only in product development, but how to do that in the way we think about leadership. 
Um, and so that's been an area that I'm exploring as well. Uh, are you familiar with the work going back to the other area you're studying of uh, Sonny Brown? I am. Okay. I am. Okay, good. It's interesting. I have a whole, so, you know, your podcast, which I absolutely love the premise of, oh, um, which is, you know, read to lead, right. <laughs> is, is really, um, something that resonates so profoundly for me because I'm actually sitting in a library in, in my office right now where the podcast studio is and there are books all around me. <laughs> so <laughs> on, on a shelf, I have tons of uh, visual facilitation books and I look at them and go, okay, you need to dive in and keep reading and working. <laughs> and Sonny Brown's is like staring at me uh -huh. right now as I'm talking to you. <laughs> We've had the privilege of having both her and, and Dan Rome on the oh, show cool. before. And yeah, really, really love those folks. Um, I know your book has been out for a little while, for a few months. What's what's next on the horizon for you, Mindy? What are you working on now uh, that you're excited about that you can share? Um, two things, actually. And so I do something where I help HR folks get uh, deeper in their organization development skills so that they don't have to continue to hire people like me or external resources like me. I think there's plenty of work in the world that I will never work myself out of a job, but <laughs> Um, I do think that that HR folks have great intuition around how to do this work, um, you know, in, in terms of coaching leaders and helping organizations develop their cultures and things like that. But I don't know that they have a lot of the um, kind of nuts and bolts about how to really use themselves and some of the tools and tips and techniques that that actually help facilitate that in organizations. And so I work with uh, HR teams to help ratchet up their ability in um, in being great OD practitioners and, um, and I'm going to be taking that online and mm. that's a new realm for me. Um, you know, we do a lot of stuff online, uh, with the company, but you know, it has been up to this point, very dependent on being in the same room together. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I want to make sure not to lose the essence of that, but I've had a lot of requests for, we call it, we call it the OD Academy and it's a two and a half day investment. And a lot of people can't make that investment. Um, in terms of time. Mm. And so I'm, I'm, we're, we're at the early stages of figuring out how do we not lose what's important about that and the connection that happens in those meetings. Um, you know, how do you create that online community to keep that going at the same time, be able to give people more flexibility about how um, the content is delivered. Mm. So that's, uh, that's one big project going on right now. And then the second one is really around the next book. And the next book is going to be very much in part um, a bit of looking at the leader as OD practitioner. Mm. So it's, that's a bad title and it's not going to be that <laughs> title. And, um, but, but, you know, I think that so much of what leadership, I think it, it is, is in, a, um, in need of a big revolution in terms of what's really going to be important to compel organizations in the future and I think that um, leaders have to get much, much better at those skills of light, of, you know, creating a culture, of driving um, collaboration in an organization. Things that have, by and large, been deemed as soft. Mm. Um, and I think that's a huge disservice to them. Because at the end of the day, particularly with what you see in terms of what matters to millennials, I think that we are going to be in for a ride where leaders have to get much better about how they use themselves, how they, you know, this book is the first step in that direction. The next piece will really help them think about things like how do you design an organization? Mm. How do you, you know, accelerate?
a high performance team? How do you shape a culture? Um, and basically dig into components of what has by and large before now been housed in the world of OD or HR mm. and start to blend them much more into the world of leadership. I've never been a fan of that phrase, soft skills, because I've always yeah, thought it, it, <laughs> <laughs> it suggests they're not as important. I never liked exactly. that. Well, the book, again, is Leading with Intention. Every moment is a choice. We'll link to it in the show notes, as well as the uh, peak performance uh, podcast that Mindy hosted. I get that title right? It's actually Peak Development Radio. Peak Development Radio. A link to that as well. Uh, Mindy, thank you for your time today. Thank you for being a part of the show. We appreciate having you here and you taking the time to, to share your knowledge with us. Jeff, it's been a real pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. Feel free to reach out to Mindy on Twitter if you'd like to connect with her. She's at Mindy Hall, PhD on Twitter. That's at Mindy Hall, PhD. Everything you'd like to know about Mindy and her new book and the resources, books, and links we talked about can be found at the page created, especially for this episode. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 086 for episode 86. Now, here's something particularly cool that I only recently found out about. If you listen to the podcast on an iPhone or an iPad via the native Apple Podcast app. Bringing up the show notes for each episode is as simple as tapping the Read to Lead podcast artwork. That will bring up the show notes, and the links contained within the show notes are embedded. You can tap those as well and go right to the resources. Otherwise, go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash 086. Remember, our sponsors, Blinkist and Linda, found at readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist, and readtoleadpodcast.com slash Linda. I need to give a special thanks to Alex Thorne, who's the latest to give the podcast a five-star rating and review. And his rating and review comes with a warning. He says, if you're not much of a reader, this podcast will make you an avid one. And if you already love reading, then prepare to have a pile of books you can't wait to get to after subscribing. Alex hosts his own podcast, a fitness-driven podcast, by the way, called Live to Win. Thank you, Alex. We'd very much appreciate it if you would rate and review the podcast. That helps it get noticed by other people. And it only takes a couple of minutes if you think it's five-star worthy. We'll even mention you by name in an upcoming episode of the show. It's our way of saying thanks. Visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes to leave a rating and review there or readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher. Well, that wraps up the podcast for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the next edition of the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Thank <laughs> you.